Well, would you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew? And we begin Matthew chapter 24 today in the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 24, but I'm going to begin my reading in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 29. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word? Uh, Beginning in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 29. This is the very word of God. Let's give it our attention. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, All these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. As we continue here in Matthew's Gospel, it is Passion Week. It is Holy Week. Jesus had said to his disciples, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. But then, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem at the beginning of the week, he rode into shouts and singing, singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to palm branches waving. He's hailed as the Messiah with festal enthusiasm by all the Passover pilgrims. Hosanna to the Son of David. Matthew tells us that the whole city, 
a city that you must understand is thronged with tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, according to Josephus, pilgrims there to celebrate the Passover. Matthew tells us that it is stirred up. And they are saying, who is this? And of course, as Jesus enters the temple, their zeal for the feast is matched by his zeal for his own house. And so he is incensed by what he finds there in the temple plaza, incensed by the racketeering that's going on in the courts of the temple, and he drives out the money changers and the sellers of animals, and he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, I want you to give special attention to these words, and particularly to the pronoun. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Now, of course, Jesus is quoting the scriptures. But he is saying more than God said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Jesus is claiming that he is God's son and that this is his house. The temple is his house. Now hold that in your minds for a moment and contrast it with what he says at the end of 23 when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered up your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Listen for it. See, your house is left to you Desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you notice the change of the pronoun? My house has become your house. That is to say, it's not theirs by right, but it is being left to them, and it's being left to them in a particular condition. It's being left desolate. You know what desolate means? It means deserted. It means abandoned. It means forsaken, left empty. You see, in these words, Jesus is saying something profound. He's saying something about the removal of God's blessing and presence from this house. It's as though he leaves a sign on the door that says Ichabod. The glory has departed. You remember the story from the Old Testament as the ark is taken away? And it is the, the child is named Ichabod, for the glory of God has departed. And then you see, that ends chapter 23, and how does chapter 24 begin? Jesus left the temple. Your house is left deserted, and Jesus left the temple, and he went away. And Jesus will never come again to the temple in blessing. For all of its majestic appearance, its glorious grandeur, its stunning beauty, the temple had become a hollow shell. 
It was no longer serving the purpose for which it was designed. And you see, it's that sobering reality that serves as the backdrop for all of this Olivet Discourse, for all of chapters 24 and 25. And it informs the questions that the disciples come asking here at the beginning of this chapter. Now, as we begin this chapter, I think it's important to just acknowledge that this is a portion of God's Word that has proved particularly difficult uh, for people to interpret. And it has therefore engendered a host of various opinions and interpretations, some of them radically dissimilar with respect to both the time and the circumstances of the events that Jesus foretells. Uh, I, I suppose that the things I am about to say are radically dissimilar than a lot of the ways you may have grown up hearing about the events of this chapter. But I don't think it needs to be as difficult as it is made out to be. And I want to encourage you that we can understand this portion of God's Word. I want to encourage you that Jesus gives us clues. He leaves us a way of understanding. And so this is going to be a little bit of an unusual sermon in this regard that I'm going to begin just by giving you the big picture. Uh, I want to give you the flyover, bird's eye view to to see the literary landmarks that help us see the layout of the land. And so to that end, uh, we're going to look at this under three points simply. First, the coming destruction, as Jesus foretells it in verses 1 and 2, the coming destruction. Uh, Secondly, the confused disciples in verse 3, as they express their confusion and questions to Jesus about the things he's just said. And then finally, the clarifying description and distinction that Jesus gives in verses 4 through 44. So the coming destruction, the confused disciples, and the clarifying description that's here. As we begin in verses 1 through 2, Jesus predicts this coming destruction of the temple And I think we should just back up for a moment and remind ourselves of the context. It's been a busy day. It's been a busy Tuesday in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus came and he uh, spoke parables of judgment. Uh, And then those parables of judgment were met by an interrogation on the parts of the religious leaders as they come and they are seeking to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the crowds. And that interrogation leads to Jesus' pronouncement of seven woes. A woe, remember, is a prophetic act in which a prophet is pronouncing God's judgment against his people. The woes were spoken in pairs, culminating in that seventh woe where Jesus reminded them that he's sending them prophets and wise men and they're going to kill them and crucify them so that all the blood shed on earth, the blood from righteous Abel, the first prophet, Adam's son, all the way to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the last prophet, whom they murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. All that blood will be on their heads. And he says, I say to you, now listen, All these things will come upon this generation. You need to pay attention to those words because they keep coming up 
All these things will come upon what generation? This generation. And that was the impetus for his saying, See, your house is left to you desolate, deserted, abandoned, and then Jesus deserts it. He walks out of Jerusalem, and he says, you will not see me again. Now, you can only imagine that disciples have heard all of these things, and their heads are just spinning. They are trying to figure out what in the world is Jesus talking about. You see, they believe Jesus is the Messiah, don't they? Uh, Peter made that great confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the anointed one. You are the coming king, the one who's going to deliver Israel. And because they knew he was the Messiah, they had certain expectations about what his messianic reign was going to look like. They expected that God was going to establish Jesus as the king in Jerusalem and that the temple, this temple, was going to be the epicenter of his messianic reign. The nations were going to come streaming up to Jerusalem to worship. The Gentiles, uh, that portion of God's word that Jesus quotes, my house shall be called a house of prayer. In, In the prophet it says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. You see, at this point, they don't yet understand that this earthly city of Jerusalem and this temple is just a shadow of a greater city and a greater temple. They don't understand what we were talking about when we began this worship service, where the author of Hebrews says, you have not come to an earthly mountain. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and to the heavenly Jerusalem. You see, the disciples at this point don't understand what Jesus was saying to the woman at the well when he said, you know, she's asking about what's the right place to worship. Our fathers say it was on this mountain. The Jews say it's on that mountain. And how does Jesus respond? He says, woman, the Jews had it right. The Old Testament is filled with giving you every reason to understand that Jerusalem is the proper place for worship. But then he says this, the hour is coming and it is now here when those who worship the Father will not worship on that mountain or this mountain. They will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But you see, They are Jewish men with a very earthly Jewish eschatology. And so as they are leaving the temple precincts, they're pointing out to him the buildings of the temple. And you know that Mark's gospel tells us what they said when they pointed to the buildings. They said, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. Now, you do not appreciate that as you should. And the reason you don't appreciate it, and I have not appreciated it, is because we, we cannot even imagine the, the scope and scale of what was one of the greatest wonders of the world. 
Um, you might be thinking, wait a second. I thought the second temple was small. I thought it was modest. In fact, I thought it was so modest that those who remembered Solomon's temple wept at the laying of its foundation, despising the day of small beginnings. And you would be right. The second temple was small and modest and seemingly insignificant. And that's why Herod embarked on the most ambitious reconstruction project of all time. Herod, for all of his wickedness, you know him as a wicked king, and he was. But for all of his wickedness, you need to also understand that he was probably the single greatest builder in the ancient world. His projects last to this day. Caesarea is his building project. Masada, the Herodium. But of all of those things, uh, the Temple Mount with its majestic temple was the crowning achievement. Herod wanted to put Israel on the map. This was his jurisdiction. And so he made this agreement with the Jews to take down that old dilapidated temple and to replace it with a temple that would be the envy of the entire world. Uh, In order to do this, he had to promise the Jews that he would quarry all the stones and he would gather all the supplies before he would take down the other temple. Now let me try to help you appreciate just how grand this temple was, because it's important that you understand this. And it begins with Mount Moriah. Remember Mount Moriah, a place of humble beginnings, that place where Abraham brought Isaac in obedience to the Lord to offer his son in sacrifice and was spared by the sacrificial lamb. Uh, It was that place uh, upon which David would later build the temple. But Mount Moriah was not a great building site. It was kind of steep and narrow and not really suitable as a platform for the scale of Herod's vision. Herod had a much grander vision. And so what do you think Herod's solution was? Choose a different mountain? Nope. Build a bigger mountain. And that is literally what Herod does. He builds a mountain on top of Mount Moriah. He builds walls around the mountain peak and then he fills it up and he puts a plaza on top so that the whole of Mount Moriah is underneath the Temple Mount. To do that, he had to quarry and transport and lift and set stones that were massive. Some of these stones, which are still there, so we know how big they are, 40 feet, by 18 feet, by 12 feet. That is a massive stone. Some of these stones weigh 600 tons. The plaza was 144,000 meters. 144,000 is an important number. It's not accidental, the dimensions of this plaza. 144,000 meters. That is 30 soccer fields. For, for us Americans, a soccer field is a little bigger than a football field. So imagine the swamp in downtown Gainesville. And now imagine an area 30 times larger than the swamp. 
That was the size of the platform and the plaza that Herod built. And that was just the frame. In the center of that plaza towered the actual temple. The temple itself was four football fields by six football fields. And it towered over everything. It sat there like a crouched lion, dazzling in white granite and adorned with gold. It took 10,000 men, 10,000 men, eight years. Even Titus. You know who Titus is? Titus is the general who destroyed Jerusalem. Titus said, it is the glory of human creation. So you can just imagine how incredibly glorious this Temple Mount must have appeared to these humble Galilean fishermen. They live in the north. They come down only for the feasts. And they are dumbstruck. And they are thinking... Jesus is the king. We're going to rule and reign there with him. And all the nations are going to come streaming in. Jesus, look what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And not only is Jesus not impressed, He says, you see all of these? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He answers their fawning delight with a foreboding prediction. Not one of these massive, beautiful stones will be left standing. There is a destruction coming the scale and scope of which you do not understand. And so Jesus tells of this coming destruction, and it leads us to our second point, the confusion of the disciples. How could they not be confused? When you consider their expectations, when you consider the size and the scope of the temple that they're looking at, you understand, and yet... Remarkably, in all of their confusion, they've been thinking about this all the way from Mount Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, to the Mount of Olives, which, by the way, is the place where the Messiah will come from. They've been thinking about it the whole way, uh, so that when they get to the Mount of Olives, we read in verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Did you hear those words repeated? When will these things be? Jesus had said, all these things are going to come upon this generation. Jesus, when will these things be? They're recognizing that this judgment, this desolation of the house is coming, it's near. But I want you to also notice the confusion. Because what they do is they conflate all of these things with the end of the world. With the end of the age. They cannot conceive of such a complete destruction as anything less than the end and the disillusion of all things. 
And so in their minds, they just blend two things together that should be divided. And the question should be divided. Sometimes, uh, as Presbyterians who practice good polity at General Assembly or Presbytery, multiple questions will become, come before the assembly. We had this happen at our last assembly where there was questions about whether we should revise our membership vows and whether we should v- revise our baptism vows. And those questions came together because they were about the vows. And I think the assembly very wisely said, these are two questions. We need to divide the question and consider them separately. Jesus is doing something like that here. He's dividing the question. He's telling them what you think is one event is actually two events. It's actually going to unfold separately. And so that brings us to our final point then today about Jesus' clarifying description. You see, the way that Jesus answers is meant to bring clarity to their confusion. It's meant to change and shape their expectations uh, so that they can recount this conversation in the future. Part of the problem with so much current really dispensational thinking on this issue, is they, they start with the disciples' confusion as a starting point. They think the disciples aren't confused. But Jesus makes it clear that they are. And so he's going to bring clarity to them. And let me help you see that. In verses 4 through 35, he explains when all of these things will be. Notice verse 34. What does verse 34 say as you look at your Bibles? Remember, he had already said all these things will come upon this generation. Then in verse 34, he repeats that language and says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That's the division. Those are like parentheses. Everything between those. Jesus is talking about answering their first question. Now, for some of you, you're thinking, wait, there's a lot of things in between those two all things statements. For some of you, this will be the first time you've ever heard anything like this. Maybe, like me, you grew up in a dispensational background, reading Hal Lindsey in the Left Behind series. And every time you heard about the signs of the times, you were led to believe that all of those signs were going to accompany the second coming of Jesus and the end of the world. And so you read of wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and great tribulation and the gospel of the kingdom being proclaimed in the whole world. And then the end would come. You read about false Christs and the abomination of desolation and the sun being darkened and stars falling from heaven and the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And all of that apocalyptic language, and you just assumed that's about the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. But actually, I think it's quite clear that all of those things are not talking about the second coming at all. They're all part of the all things that will come upon this generation. And I promise, I'm going to try and help you understand that. But you have to come back next week. They are the signs that lead up to that moment in which there will not be left one stone upon another 
they will all be thrown down. If that is the bookend at verse 34, look at the transition that occurs in verse 36. Jesus begins to answer the second part. That is, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And he says in verse 36, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. The language of day and hour are eschatological language in Scripture that refer to the coming of Christ. And notice, notice the difference. Uh, notice how that first judgment and the, the tearing down of the temple will be accompanied by all kinds of signs. Jesus is warning them in advance. He says, look out. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be false Christs. There's going to be this abomination of desolation when you see it. Then those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. And those who are in the field should not turn back to get their cloaks and pray that it's not on the Sabbath. Jesus is speaking to Jews living in Judea who can flee when they see the signs. He's warning the disciples about the great tribulation that is going to come upon Jerusalem and its temple, a a tribulation such as had not been from the beginning of the world. But what kind of signs will accompany the return of Christ? No signs. It's not what you've been led to believe. Concerning that day and hour, nobody will know. In fact, it's going to be like the days of Noah when everyone was just going about their business when suddenly the flood came. It's going to be like a servant who should stay awake because they know not when the master of the house is coming. It's going to be like virgins who should be always ready for the bridegroom. The whole point is that he's coming unexpectedly in that day like a thief in the night. You need to be ready. And just as an aside here, in spite of all that Jesus says about how no one will know when he will return, it hasn't stopped people from guessing. You might remember when we worshipped at the Seventh-day Adventist building, the code on their door was 1844. It was meant ironically because that was the date that William Miller, the founder of the Adventists, had predicted the return of Christ. I thought it was great that they chose that, could laugh at themselves. By the way, it's no longer their door code. I'm not giving anything away. When I was a kid, it was Hal Lindsey and Edgar Wisenant. They were all the rage, predicting that Jesus was going to come back In 1988, wasn't it even wrote the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. And then it was the radio host, Harold Camping. And then it was Jerry Falwell. And then it was Jack Van Empey. And then it was Mark Blitz, the blood moon. They were all embracing the confusion of the disciples, trying to read signs when Jesus is saying there aren't going to be signs. 
you will not know the day or the hour. That day, not even the angels of heaven or the Son of Man know. And so much of the problem stems from failing to properly distinguish between these two events where Jesus is trying to give us clarity. Now, I know that there are difficult things to understand here. We're not used to reading apocalyptic language. And so when we read that the stars are falling from the heavens and the moon is darkened, right? It, it's easy for us to jump like the disciples did and think, this is the end of the world. And that is an impulse that has grabbed people throughout history to think that whatever event is here upon us, this is it. This is the end of the world. There's going to be difficult language. Some things more difficult to understand than others. But Jesus is giving us clarity. And so I want to encourage you. And I want to encourage you to read through this passage and to pay attention to these landmarks and to this distinction between what would come upon this generation and what will come in that day and hour. It, encourage us, it encourages us, no matter, no matter whether you think I'm right or wrong, it encourages us to be ready. Jesus is going to return in judgment. And there is, in many ways, a theological correspondence between his coming in judgment in 70 A.D. at Jerusalem and the way he comes in judgment at the end of the world. Right? There are always these theological correspondences. Even the way he comes in at Mount Sinai with thundering and darkness and gloom and the sound of a trumpet so that the people said, we don't want to hear him speaking to us. Moses, you go up. Acts of judgment are always in apocalyptic language. But we must be ready. And your readiness, thank the Lord, will not depend on how well you interpreted Matthew 24. It will depend on whether or not you have looked to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. You remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees and to the scribes, the tax collectors and the prostitutes enter the kingdom before you because they heard the gospel and they believed and they repented. Your readiness is not found in yourself. Your readiness is found in Christ, forgiven of your sins, dressed in the perfections of His righteousness because that is the only righteousness that can endure the judgment, the scrutiny, and the severity of God's coming. And even as we read about this horrible tribulation described in this chapter and the destruction of the temple, we can thank the Lord that we don't come to that temple. We don't come to any earthly temple. The true epicenter of Christ's kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would be drawing swords. My kingdom is of heaven. It's a heavenly city, a heavenly temple. The hour has come and it is here, but it is not at that mountain or this mountain. It is as we ascend the heavenly mountain by faith to worship in spirit and in truth. 
You see, as majestic and grand and glorious as that earthly temple was, and it was, I wish I could have seen it. It had become just a hollow shell. It had become just like the Pharisees. They appeared grand and glorious on the outside, but inside were full of dead men's bones. The temple, for all of its beauty, had become a hollow shell, a building that would be shaken and raised to the ground. But Hebrews says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And let us praise the Lord that that consuming fire has been quenched for all who believe in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, it is difficult to read of your judgment and to think of its severity. And Lord, we, even as we read these things and of the tribulation of this chapter, as we contemplate what it is like when you come and shake all things that can be shaken, Lord, we are reminded to flee to our Savior, to run to Him for refuge, and to know that His righteousness can stand up against your fierce wrath. And Lord Jesus, being found in Him, we pray that we would be grateful for receiving an unshakable kingdom. And we pray that we would proclaim the good news so that tax collectors and prostitutes and even such as us might be gathered in under your wings. Lord, you longed to gather up Jerusalem as a hen gathers up her brood under her wings, but they were not willing. Lord, may we be willing. And so, Lord, may we find shelter and safety there. And may we always be ready, for we know not when the master of the house is coming. May we always be ready, mindful that you are coming as in the days of Noah, as a thief in the night. May we be like so many virgins waiting for our bridegroom. And Lord, we ask that you would be pleased by your Holy Spirit to work this in us. And we say it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was saying, this, this meal, this meal reminds us of the fellowship that we have in Christ because this meal is and pictures the wrath and judgment that our Savior underwent on our behalf so that we might be united to Him. And I would just ask you today, as these elements are passed out, are you ready to meet the Lord? That is a good question for you to ask yourself. You know not when the master of the house is coming. Are you ready? And if your immediate impulse is to say, yeah, I'm a good person, I think I'm ready to meet him. You are not ready. If your impulse is, Lord, I desperately need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need you to cover me and clothe me with your righteousness. I need you to forgive me of my sins so that I can have communion and fellowship with you. And you may be ready. And so, even as these elements pass, I would encourage you to have that question in your minds. 
If you have professed your faith, if you're a baptized member of a, of a church where the, the, the gospel of God's free grace in Christ is preached, and if you're walking in faith and in repentance, then you're welcome to join us in this meal. But if those things are not true of you and you know you're not ready, then I would encourage you to let these elements pass. But I would also encourage you to look in faith to Christ, to be his disciple and to follow after him and find refuge under his wings. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and use them for this holy use. Lord, as we come to your table, we thank you for the work that you have accomplished. We thank you that your wrath and judgment was poured out on the cross for all those who look to the Son in faith. And Lord, we we thank you that your Holy Spirit has applied these things to our hearts and has even worked faith in us so that we might receive this free gift of grace and salvation. And we thank you that you continue to feed us and sustain us and work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. And we pray that you would do that even now through this means of grace. We thank you that it is a means of grace to us in that way. And so, Lord, we ask that you would take these ordinary elements now and set them apart for this holy use. In Jesus' name, amen.